0: Hello and welcome to Thriving in Intersectionality, a podcast created to help you learn from professionals in the workplace who have multiple intersectional identities, from ethnic minorities, veterans transitioning into the workforce, individuals with disabilities, parents, and so many more. My name is Lola Adeyemo. I am the CEO of EQI Mindset and the founder of the nonprofit Immigrants in Corporate Inc. I work with organizations to build inclusive workplaces. This podcast was built to amplify the voices of leaders and immigrants in the corporate workplace and to give insights and guidance so people can move past their barriers and advance in their professional careers. Through interviews and solo episodes, I'm going to examine this global world of work. I know that you can learn a thing or two from my guests, who have a range of experiences and stories to share. Join me as we meet new people who are successfully navigating the corporate space. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving in Intersectionality podcast, my guest today is Ruben M. Stokes. Ruben is a diversity, equity, and inclusion subject matter expert and a trusted advisor to corporate leadership teams. In 2020, Ruben retired from his role as the vice president of global diversity and inclusion for Termo Fisher Scientific, a Waltham, Massachusetts based Fortune 100 corporation. In 2021, he established Ruben M. Stokes DEI Advisory Services, an exclusive C-Suite-focused DEI advisory practice. Ruben is a native of Pasadena, California, is a graduate of Dartmouth College, where he earned a BA in government and played on the Ivy League championship football team. He also holds certificates in Salesforce management, and he is being featured as a keynote speaker and expert panel moderator in different spaces. As a DEI practitioner with over 30 years of experience, Mr. Stokes is a frequent speaker and advisor celebrated for his ability to simply and easily communicate complex issues surrounding the increasing breadth and bottom line impact of DEI. And as part of our conversations today, is going to share some of those insights and I am looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. Thank you. Hi there, ambitious immigrant professionals. This is Lola, your host on the Thriving in Intersectionality podcast. Are you ready to supercharge your career? There are so many layers to doing just that, and that's what we're here for. Join our membership platform today for game-changing career coaching, expert resources and guidance, and get responses in real time to some of the issues and questions that you're going through in the workplace right now. We're not just breaking barriers. We're building bridges to advancement and career success. Visit immigrantsincorporate.org to sign up today and let's take your career to new heights. Join the membership platform today. Visit immigrantsincorporate.org slash membership. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Thriving in Intersectionality podcast. This is an inclusive workplace conversation and we are kicking off Black History Month with somebody that is very dear to me because we had so many connections, but we actually didn't meet until 2018 and towards the later part of his career. So I'm looking forward to diving deep into Ruben Stokes before I knew him because you have so much insights and I know that that didn't happen overnight. So hi, Ruben.
1: Hello, Lola. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you. All right. Let's go into getting to know Ruben and a lot of what you probably will not find on uh, the bio and the PR stuff. Um, Ruben has had a very rich career. And apart from someone I call a mentor and a friend, you've also been my manager. I've never interviewed somebody who has managed me directly. So say nice things about me, Ruben. But... (laughs) Okay, so Ruben, um, around the topic of intersectionality, can you share a little more about yourself and, you know, what are those intersections that you identify with?
1: Sure, it's my pleasure. And uh, I'll just start with, uh, I grew up in Pasadena, California, and I was number four of four children to Bailey and Alma Stokes. And they were a couple who had migrated from kind of the central valley of california or not the central valley but the eastern part of uh, southern california to pasadena and they were part of a thriving pasadena black community a very strong thriving uh black community in pasadena and um, my father worked for lockheed aircraft and he had a very high security clearance for what would be termed a negro back in those days it was pretty much unheard of for a black man to have the kind of security clearance that he had. He actually um, worked at Skunk Works. This is the Lockheed um, test area where they test and build uh, special secret military aircraft for the United States Air Force and other uh, parts of the U.S. military. And um, he would go away for a couple of weeks. We'd drop him off in Burbank at the airport. and he'd go away for a couple weeks and then he'd come back and we'd pick him up at the airport and he could never tell my mother what he was doing. Um, and it was just one of those things, but uh, he was an aircraft mechanic. And I uh, was very proud of the fact that he was who he was. I didn't know at the time in later years, I found out that he worked at his place called skunk works. And um, there was a guy there who gave him an award. And this guy was uh, Clarence Kelly Johnson, who had actually created Skunk Works. But long story short, he worked on the U 2 airplane and the SR 71 Blackbird. Um, My father also committed suicide in our garage when I was five years old. Um, You know, mental health issues, job related stress, all that kind of thing. This was 1962. And my mother became a single mother with four children and had to figure out how to go from being a housewife to being a breadwinner and all the rest of that. The blessing was that my parents had actually purchased their home. Most of um, their friends could never, you know, get a mortgage and purchase a home, but they were able to do that. And so I stayed in a very stable home all through my uh, my early years. Uh, my mother is tenacious. She is... Um, She is someone who was very involved in the civil rights movement way back when in Pasadena. And people think that California is is, very open-minded and liberal now. But back in the day, um, there was serious segregation. There was the black side of Pasadena and there was the white side of Pasadena. And I actually grew up in the black side of Pasadena. But I went to school in the white side of Pasadena because my mother knew that there were educational opportunities that I wasn't going to get in the black side of Pasadena. So she finagled all kinds of things and got me to these schools where I was the only one or one of very, very few. So long story short, she was uh, monitoring and guiding my education. And what she eventually did was got me into what was an elite private school where I was on scholarship. And that's where I went to high school. And what I learned going to that elite school was I learned about things that I didn't know existed. You know, Ivy League schools. I didn't know... Other things that um, the privileged classes did and the kinds of things that they understood and the way they lived their lives. And it exposed me to something most of my peers from home never got a chance to see or understand. Now, what this did was I straddled two different communities and it was not easy. I straddled the black community and I straddled the white community and trying to have them mesh was very, very different. And so, you know, I was code switching every day. And that was something I learned at a very early age. And, you know, I did a lot of covering and, you know, on both sides. And it was uh, it was a challenge. But I think that that really enabled me to be the person I am today. So long story short, grew up uh, in Pasadena, lived in those two worlds, never really fully a part of either one, but lived in both. And then um, went away to school, Um, wanted to get as far from Pasadena as I could get, so I got to Dartmouth College and really enjoyed that experience. It was totally different. It was up in the the mountains of New Hampshire. Uh, Ended up playing football there, enjoyed it, was a government major. Um, my major was just kind of, I really wasn't sure. I didn't have a sense for what I could or should be. I didn't know anything about business school. I didn't know, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be a doctor cause, uh, that was not something I wasn't good with blood. Um, and so I figured well, what the heck I'll be a lawyer and you know, okay, so I'll go to law school. Well, I went to law school for a year and realized that was way too much reading and way too much stuff that would lose my attention. And you know, I've got the attention span of a gnat, and just was very difficult for me. So I said, "This is not going to work." So I left law school and I got a job in sales, and it was happenstance. I didn't know anything about selling, um, happenstance, and I I found my nirvana that worked for me. It was something I was really good at uh, building relationships. Um, Selling value and helping people solve problems, and I loved it, and I was very successful at it. So you know, let's fast forward a few years. Uh, I met a wonderful woman. We got married. um was living in Southern California and the tra- or working in the transportation industry, and had an opportunity to relocate. So we left Southern California and moved to Illinois and established a new life in Illinois. Uh, it was I promoted myself essentially. Um, And so we did that. And all during this time, I was kind of learning and being in situations where I was the only person of color. And it reminded me of when I was in high school. And in, um, you know, there was a a section in in, that I didn't mention, I've gone to a, a, a predominantly white elementary school. And then for middle school, I was brought back to the black community. And then so it's like, Oh boy, here I am. Now I'm in an all black school. And before I went to the private school, I was in the all black school and that was, you know, culture, all kinds of culture shift. And then going to the all white school, the the privileged white private school, another culture shift. So I had been trained, if you will, to deal with situations where I was the only person of color. So all that to say, um, you yeah, know, that, is something that got me to where I am. And I'll talk a little bit more about my my career path.
0: No, I, I love it because I think I think that context is important because you keep talking about, you know, you went into you grew up navigating different worlds even as a child. And and I think even talking about finding sales and finding what you love, because you already raised and loved and thrived in that environment, and you're able to bring that to the workplace. So it's you know I'm understanding a little bit about how you are the way you are. You're a natural at this, <laughs> and, and, and we'll, <laughs> we'll Thank get you, the Lilla. conversations, yeah, of the workplace now. Because and then from sales, what happened? How did you get to where you are now? Um, well, um, yeah,
1: I'll I'll back up a little bit and talk about family and, and aspirations. Um, you know, my wife and I, we were kindred spirits. I mean, we we were planning to have a successful family, meaning we wanted to live in the nicest neighborhoods we could. We wanted our, our kids to go to the best schools possible. And so, you know, we both worked hard. I worked hard professionally uh, outside of the home, and she worked hard professionally inside of the home and so she was just a tremendous manager of our children and guiding them and making sure that they were getting the educational opportunities they needed were being involved in organizations and things like that that were beneficial to them and she was an expert at that so you know once again symbiotic relationship it all worked and worked very very well now moving on to um where my career started my career really kind of started when I got into sales. That was, um, that was the eye-opener for me. Um, I liked the fact that you could measure my performance with hard data. You could see the numbers. What did Ruben produce? What did Ruben's teams produce? And that was something that was extremely important to me. I wanted to be able to measure and compare myself. Um, I was highly competitive. I was a college football player. So I was an athlete. And, you know, once again, winning was important to me. And I was also um, finding myself in the sales arena as the only black person around. And so there were presumptions that a lot of people had. Well, he's here because of, or this is something where they needed one of these. And they go, oh, no, 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 no. This is our highest producer. This is Ruben Stokes. He is our higher, highest producer, and it's based on hard work and dedication, and I'll give you an example of that. When we moved to Illinois and I went to work for this company, I was a regional director, and they were a little concerned because they were going to put me in a territory that ooh, was kind of potentially racist, you know, right? Okay, right. You know, that's nothing new to me, and the territory was Texas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Nebraska, Kansas, and Colorado. So my peers all lived in Illinois, and they would talk to their constituents on the phone. I determined that in order for me to be successful, I've got to be in the territory. So I would leave on Monday mornings, and I'd be gone, or Sunday nights even, I'd be gone until Friday night, and I would be in the territory, pressing the flesh, meeting with our licensees, they're like franchisees, and meeting with their customers. And so I was out there in the field, living in hotels and living on airplanes and all that kind of thing. And my peers were living on the phone. They were talking to their franchisees and and those customers when they even spoke to the customers on the phone. And so I was distinguishing myself that way because nobody could outwork me. And again, I was the only black. Um, and it's important that, that I note that. when I When I talk about intersectionality and I call myself black, I do not call myself African-American. That's a label that has been placed on black Americans in the United States. And we don't refer to white Americans as European Americans. And mm-hmm. it's like, that's the default. And so if you're anything other than what would be considered a European American, you're a whatever American, you're an Asian American, you're a Hispanic American. No, I don't, I am, the black people in the United States have a unique history. You know, we were not brought here, our ancestors were, were not uh, going through Ellis Island and voluntarily came here. They were forced to be here and they survived and thrived in just the most heinous conditions not just during slavery, but after slavery. So we have a unique culture and one that deserves the respect of its own name, because mm-hmm. Black Americans have gone through, you know, so many things. So I am I am a Black man in America, and so you know I, I resist that African American label. And you know, for someone who was born in Africa who comes to the United States, you are an African American. And that's not any kind of derogatory label, but that's who you are. But it's important that we recognize what the struggle has been and the resilience has been of Black Americans in this country. So I digress. <laughs> anyway, I no, found myself—
0: not digress. I think that's still very relevant to the theme of thriving in intersectionality, and I'm glad you clarified that uh, because I think that context is important. Um, thank you.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, you know, again, not to belabor the point, but black people have lived in a hostile environment um, from the moment they arrived here in 1619. <clears throat> you know, it's, um, it's been a hostile environment and people don't want to acknowledge that, especially in the current political environment. And that's a problem because these things have compounded over the years, you know, the restrictions of redlining. And I talked about my parents having a home That was, I mean, not unheard of, but very rare for a black person or black family to own their home. They typically paid rent and, you know, to someone else and typically a white landlord. And then, you know, there was redlining. They could not, they wouldn't sell to you. They wouldn't give you mortgages. You didn't have access to the GI Bill, all these things that helped build the white middle class. And people assume, well, everybody had access to that. They just didn't take advantage of it. No, they didn't have access to it, but that's a whole nother story. But anyway... Um, I found myself as being the only one, um, in every situation just about professionally. And so I had to work extra hard to distinguish myself. So getting back to my travel, I would be gone. I'd, I'd leave Sunday night, Monday morning, wouldn't be back till Friday. And I'd be talking to as many people as possible. And the numbers in my territory just skyrocketed because I was making it happen. It wasn't luck. It wasn't, it was hard work and it was tough being away from my young family. And, you know, it was just one of those things, but my wife and I had committed, we're going to, we're going to make this thing work. So long story short, I got promoted over my white peers, but I didn't get promoted immediately. Um, when the job became available, the national sales director job became available. Uh, I put my name in the hat because, you know, my numbers were better than everybody else's. And I just assumed I'd be the right person. And um, I was told I didn't fit the profile. And I said, whoa, okay, you don't. And that was the hiring manager who told me I didn't fit the profile. He was the VP of sales. And I said, oh, okay. And at the time, I was, you know, I knew what it meant. So I didn't ask him for clarification. But, uh, you know, it was very, very clear. You, You can't put a black man in a job like that. And so, you know, they looked around for a while and didn't find who they were looking for. And the president of the company was relatively new. And he called me in his office one day and he said, I know you applied for this job and we didn't give it to you before, but why should we give you this job now? And I said, if you give me this job, you're going to win. And he looked at me and said, okay, show me. So I got the job and, you know, that was all I needed. It's like licking my chops. We're going to do things nobody has done. And so part of my role was to build relationships throughout the company and throughout the country. And that's what I did. The movers and shakers, you know, the big franchises that we had in the organization. You had lots of, you know, the 80-20 rule. You got the 20 big ones, the powerful ones. I made them my friends by helping them gain business. So bottom line is I influenced the way they thought and we changed the way we did things. Um, There was a a function within the organization that could really negatively impact a customer if they didn't do this function properly. So I went to those guys and I joined them at the hip. It's like we got to make sure this works so we get a customer. We don't lose that customer. So all those things, um, that was just experience that I had over the course of my career. And then the way I got involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion was uh, by happenstance. I took a job. I, you know, I was pretty much full of myself. And I got recruited away to a company in Miami. And this company wanted me to be their national sales director. And I said, great, that's it. I'm, you know, I'm raring to go. This is a Fortune 500 company so i came down there and i got the job and again i was the only one and my boss was not a good manager and uh he was very stuck on the fact that he had hired a man of color you know and so he was watching me like a hawk to make sure that you know i didn't screw things up and it's like screw things up what no you want me to this is the goal i am going to help you achieve the goal bottom line is i changed out the sales force the sales force they had you know terrible these these folks were not producing anything and they did not like me because i wanted to hold them accountable and say you know these are the numbers we expect you need to produce this and uh, so they had a wholesale revolt and three of them quit on the same day one guy in virginia one guy in michigan and i don't remember where the other one was but i had gone out to visit the guy in virginia And he told me at the time, oh, he was in New Jersey. Um, The guy in Virginia said, well, I'm leaving the organization. Okay. All right. You know, that's your choice. And then I went out to the guy in Michigan and he said, I'm leaving the organization. And I didn't even go to New Jersey. You know, I just called him and said, okay, you you plan on leaving too? Because it sounds like, you know, you guys are trying to pull a coup here. Well, they left. I brought in a high performance sales team that included women and people of color and things started shifting all of a sudden the numbers that were flat began to grow and these people had talents and skills that were way beyond what the company had ever experienced in this role before so the point was um i'm doing this and my boss at the time said oh i know what you're doing you're just hiring the brothers and it's like oh man is that what that's what you you see the numbers is that what you think so anyway they didn't really like me. I didn't really like them. I wasn't being appreciated. So my previous company said, well, come on back. And I said, great, I'll be back to Chicago. And um, my wife said, I'm not going. She didn't want to leave the Miami area because she loved it. And that was first. So they said, okay, if you can't come back to Chicago, there's this thing called diversity. If you're willing to do it, we'll let you stay down in Miami. Okay. So I took one for the team. I, I was initially embarrassed because I didn't want to be the black man doing diversity. You know, that was so typical. And my impression of diversity was, well, that was for, you know, those folks who really couldn't do things. You know, it was, it was kind of a substandard kind of thing. I bought into all the racist tropes that were floating around at the time. Well, anyway, got the job. And so I had to figure out how to do things. What I figured was I know how to generate revenue so i took what i knew about what little i knew about diversity and what little i knew about how to use it or how to uh employ it within an organization and i linked it to what was a new um, um, growing um, uh, i guess strategy within organizations and that was called supplier diversity long story short i combined the two connected them and created a whole new business opportunity. And so this was innovation, not that I was incredibly innovative, I was just trying to figure out how to make it work. So I linked it to revenue and I was able to begin to generate revenue and create new business opportunities, leveraging supplier diversity. And so this was unheard of. And what I realized was that I was onto something. So long story short, that's how I got involved in in diversity. Uh, initially, and I've watched diversity um, evolve from, um, you know, a derivative of EEO and affirmative action to a validated business strategy that impacts every facet of an organization and every function within an organization and really defines culture and, you know, the ability to adapt, the ability to respond to opportunities, and I call it seeing around the corner. Because if you've got that inclusive environment where people are feeling that, that, that sense of team and camaraderie, they're going to be giving that discretionary effort. And if you've got people with different ideas, different backgrounds, different experiences, meshing them together into those intersections that create that explosive innovation. So that, yeah. that in, a, in a nutshell, is my career, and that's what I'm passionate about
0: well i love it (laughs) so i mean just listening to you talk about your passion for sales your background getting into sales getting into diversity um, inclusion and i think that's the missing link for a lot of organizations in understanding all of the terminologies around dei and love hate relationship with the term um is is really we're still talking about the same thing generating business results we're just talking about a strategy that puts people into the mix and, and you know you, you you talk about numbers, right? People want to see numbers. It's sad that we have to prove some of these things with numbers, but again, that's the, that's the language of corporate America. so we can never separate it um, f- for people. And you've worked with a lot of big organizations. So I think just looking at your background, your context, um, all of your intersections, I mean, you talk so much about family, uh, we have conversations around families and workplaces a lot of times it's usually women so i love that you shared that as an intersection being a dad um, a husband while building your career as well um so if we're, if, if people that are listening now kind of fit into I, I, I feel like your your message and just the insights you bring first is to corporate america overall or some of the the changes that need to happen some of the perceptive perspectives that they need to bring into building more inclusive workplaces. Um, so and then, so let, let's talk about it in two-piece. So what insights can you share for companies that are looking to build more inclusive workplaces? And And just from what you have observed from a sales career with top organizations to a career as a leader in the DEI space, what are some of the insights that you would share with organizations that truly want to make a difference now?
1: I think I would start with the concept of um, transparency and uh, link that to equity, meaning corporations have, unfortunately, they have barriers internally and they have cliques internally where these are the people who make the decisions and these are the people who are promotable versus these are the people who do the work. And what they've got to do is recognize that brain power doesn't reside and skill and motivation and hard work doesn't reside with just one group. There are talented, skilled people who could provide tremendous value to your organization who may be overlooked. They may be overlooked because of simple things. And, you know, again, this isn't intentional but these are blinders that a lot of organizations have. And you know, one of them is a college education. Some of the smartest people I've known do not have college educations for whatever reason, but these are highly intelligent individuals who can assess situations and create the circumstances for very positive outcomes and who can think around and through um, challenges But because they didn't go to college, they are at this level. And someone who went to college starts at this level, even though they may be just a kid who's been pampered and privileged all their lives and went to college and partied. But they have a degree. So that gives them access to jobs that this other hardworking, brilliant person wouldn't have access to. So that's one thing. And then corporations also need to recognize that. Um, longevity in an organization doesn't mean um, productivity and unfortunately there needs to be a certain amount of turnover um, and kind of forced turnover because when you get stuck in a mindset and have group think and these people all think the same way you are headed towards disaster and so An influx of new thought and new people on a regular basis. I'm not talking about getting rid of a bunch of folks. I'm just talking about the influence and the influx of new ideas, new people with different experiences. You know, I heard a lot about, oh, well, we need somebody with industry experience. Oh, no, you don't. You need somebody who can think and who will bring a fresh perspective to a challenge. And I've watched, you know, they don't talk about that when talk about CEOs, because a CEO, one guy went from Ford to Boeing, you know, the CEO at Ford went to this, you know, the big job at Boeing, you know, Ford and Boeing, very, very different. Another guy went from GE to Home Depot or one of those, you know, again, very, very different. And they're allowed to do that. But with, you know, at the lower levels, that's where you need the influx of new ideas. And then another thing that they need to do is they need to listen to the people who do the work. The people who do the work, listen to them. And if you don't do that, if you've got nothing but high powered MBAs making all the decisions and they're insulated from what's really happening in the real world and all they're seeing are numbers, um, you are not gonna understand what's going on out there. Your products are gonna become obsolete and somebody's going to eat your lunch. And so the point on all this is you need to constantly add, infuse knowledge, experience that you don't have. And you have to respect that knowledge and experience. So, you know, you may have those people who have the agility internally, and that's great. But you also need the influx from outside, or uh, yeah, the influence. Be, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, <clears throat> I, and I think you talking about CEOs now, I was just thinking about you're right. I don't think there's an industry barrier when we are talking about leaders crossing over because people see the value at that level that what we need is for you to help us deliver a different kind of results similar to what you've done. Um, but you talk about barriers to entry. Um, yeah, thank you so much for those three areas. I think those are great um, for organizations and I'm glad we got a chance to capture that. Uh, from you, uh, but then also talking about early to mid-career employees and mm-hmm. the people working in these spaces, uh, we know that change from the top, change within organizations take forever. I mean, we have a long way to go. <laughs> we have to keep speaking and talking about these things, um, but what advice will you give to young professionals who just, who identify with some of your intersections, right? a family-oriented, a black man, or a black person um, who are currently within the systems right now, right, within corporate America, what are some of the advice you would give to them just based on what the landscape looked like, what your experience was, what should they be doing now um, to move ahead?
1: That's a great question. And one of the things I would recommend is that you promote yourself. If your company does not recognize your talent, then you need to go somewhere where they do recognize your talent. And my experience was I was in situations where people did not recognize my talent. I mean, I thought it was pretty clear that I should be promoted after, you know, after certain milestones and accomplishments, but they didn't, for whatever reason, maybe I wasn't in the in crowd. Maybe I didn't fit the profile. Whatever the reason, if they won't do it, you do it yourself. And there are plenty of companies out there. You take your talents somewhere else. And you don't have to stay within that industry. I've been involved in all kinds of industries. You can take your talents to another industry. If you have transferable skills, and you likely do, you go somewhere else. And don't be afraid to make those kinds of moves. Because I see a lot of people who are frozen in place. It's they don't really respect me and I don't get the recognition that I deserve, but I'm afraid to move. No, you move. You go find yourself a new gig and you find yourself a place where you can learn new things and be successful. And so I call it promoting yourself. If they don't promote you, you promote yourself with a new job. And don't be afraid to relocate. Now, that's a little different from... Um, the way it was when I was, was, was younger in my career, earlier in my career, uh, there, if a company told you to relocate, you just did it. You didn't question it. Um, but that was one of the most exciting and interesting things for me. And, you know, broadening was to go someplace different. And, you know, it depends on your family circumstances, and I understand all that. And now with remote work, there's, there's all kinds of different things. But um, yeah, don't be afraid to try something new and, you know, you can take a break. You can take a break in your career. You know, it's like I've decided I'm going to take the next six months and, you know, once again, providing, of course, you have the resources to do it. Take the next six months and think about where I want to go and what I want to do. And, you know, what are my skill sets? What do I need to work on? And then continuous learning learn some new things and they they don't have to be directly job related, but they should be related to understanding the dynamics of, of groups and people and, you know, the environment around you. So I would, you know, I would encourage you to do that. And then join some clubs and associations where you meet different kinds of people from different industries. And I've been involved in all kinds of associations and, you know, some of them, Ooh, I was involved in that. Oh, that's surprising. Um, you know, way back. Um, but associations related to a particular industry or job function because you meet people and you learn things. So I would encourage them to do that. And, you know, this is one of those where if they don't see you, you see yourself and you go make that happen.
0: Absolutely, I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, if they don't promote you, promote yourself. Yes, please. <laughs> yep. And and um and part of part of that experience also is the manager experience because um you know what kind of not just the company uh because I work a lot with employee resource groups. One of the things that I hear people struggle with: okay, my organization might mean it, but my experience with my team and my manager is not is not good, right? So. You know, we've all heard the saying, people don't leave good jobs or they leave bad bosses or something like that. It's really about yeah. who is um, working with you. But I remember a conversation with you, which I'm going to break here because it was so important to me as a new hire on your team when I found out I was pregnant and I had to tell you. For some reason, I was scared <laughs> because I remember thinking he's going to be like, oh, Lord, why did I hire her? You know, she's going to need to take time off. <laughs> And I remember um, that conversation because it kind of stuck with me because you just stopped. I was coming in prepared to give you a pack of plan for my maternity. Like, hey, I'm pregnant, but don't worry about it. You know, I'm going to work until the end and I'm going to only take this much time off. And don't worry about the work. The work will get done. And I remembered you saying, hey, just pause. Congratulations. You know, like, like forcing me to pause and celebrate like, hey, you're giving me good news you know, just pause and celebrate everything we work at. And we didn't end up talking about my schedule for months because you just ended up asking me questions about my family. (laughs) And that that, that, that engagement, that conversation stuck with me because I had not had a manager conversation that was that productive. And that was my third child. And I had been working in corporate America. Um, I always felt like I had to go into a conversation with okay, talk about the work, talk about the work. The notification about you having a child means that you are going to be overlooked for things. So um, can you share a little bit for people that have, you know, all of these intersections and all of these struggles and maybe a manager experience that is not so positive?
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, you don't get to choose your manager. You do not get to choose your manager. You don't know what's going on in their personal life. You don't know what's going on in their career. Um, And unfortunately, we don't do a lot of manager training and how to really um, connect with subordinates and interact with subordinates. And, you know, you've got that kind of thing, the ignorance component. And then, unfortunately, you've also got the very negative manager, those people who are just mean and who have their own issues and have their own biases. And I've run into those situations. And yeah, you know, once again, it's like I can't change that person. What I can do is continue to work as hard as I can and keep them at arm's length, if possible, and try and accomplish the objectives I've set out for myself. And that is something I'm going to work at. But it, it's very, very tiring to keep them at arm's length and to deal with, and you know, the slights, um, the microaggressions the negativity that somebody like that will bring to the table. That's, it's very taxing. It's very tiring. And when you're in a situation like that and you've given it your best and you don't see that situation changing, my recommendation is you need to change the environment. You need to leave because that person is not going to change. You know, the likelihood that they're going to be swapped out with somebody else is unlikely. And you're going to find yourself in a negative situation that begins to affect the way you see yourself, which is terrible. That should never happen. You should always see yourself from a very positive light, and then um, it it begins to impact your performance. And so, as you see these things, that's when it's time to leave and you know find another role within the organization. And I've done that also um, at one company. Uh, I really detested my manager. I thought this person was arbitrary, biased, bigoted, and not necessarily racially bigoted, but just bigoted about so many things and very negative. I said, I don't want to be in this group. I want to be in that group over there where I know the leader and the leader is making sure that that, their people are taken care of. So I created a job and I sold it internally to say, I want to go from here to hear because I'm going to provide you additional value if I'm able to do this. And I actually went from a DEI leadership role in a Fortune 500 company into the sales organization of that same company. You know, I knew nothing about how to sell their particular products and services, but that's something you can learn. And I said, "No, I'm going to uh, I sold them a bigger picture of I'm going to take what I know and I'm going to apply it over here and I'm going to generate value for you. And it was one of the best moves I ever made because I'd go home at night and I was happy. And, you know, where previously I was going home and my stomach was hurting and I was dreading Mondays and dreading the next day. And everybody runs into those kind of managers, but you figure out a way to get out from under them. So and that's that would be my recommendation.
0: That's that's great. I love it because I think um, I think that was important to bring out about manager experience and knowing when to move. and and when to stay frozen in place, because we started off this conversation by speaking to people that kind of feel like, Oh, I don't have a choice. I I just got to stay That You have to know when to move and you have to know when to move companies and (laughs) managers. Right. Mm -hmm. So different experiences, but thank you so much for all of these. Um, Is there anything else you want to add as sort of like a, Wisdom from your world of experience, insights to share before we wrap up what could easily be another hour long conversation.
1: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. um, You know, just kind of the, the last piece on managers. I've also had some managers that I am still very close to. These are people who were godsends in my life, who were just phenomenal managers, and I grew under them. I learned, I saw. I grew and I understood how, if I was in that position, how I would want to interact with someone else, someone who was subordinate to me. And that was one of the blessings I had is I saw these people do things for me and with me. Doesn't mean they were soft, not at all, but they they helped me grow. And so, you know, again, I appreciate those kind of folks. Um, the thing I would leave most people with is, this is a job this is not your life. your life is your life. This job you do to earn money so you can have those things that you need to live your life um, but never overvalue a job and and that's not to say you know once again if you don't have a job you're not gonna eat kind of thing but never overvalue a job. It's a job is a job and do not link your self-worth with that job that is not that is not who you are that is what you do your self-worth is internal and never ever link too much to that job because jobs can disappear you know there could be a business downturn and you get laid off been there too been laid off twice it's like oh dang i thought things were going great well they were going great for me but not for the company and the company need to cut some folks and you know again it's a corporation And corporations have some wonderful things about them, but they're also cold. And they also, you know, you are not their priority. And so you are just, you know, you're a number on a piece of paper. And so people that overvalue or link their value to their jobs, that is devastating. I've seen that happen to people when something happens outside of their control and they lose that job, they lose themselves. And so that would be one of those points, you know, simple things, work hard, work harder than everybody else, but also work smarter than everybody else. One of the things I determined was nobody was ever going to outwork me. And, you know, you might be smarter than me. There's plenty of people smarter than me. And let me throw one more thing in there as a manager. One of the, the secrets to my success, I got people smarter than me working for me. And that was like, you know, people like Lola and, you know, some other people. It's like, he's a really good, good leader. How is he such a great leader? He gets people who are smarter than him working for him. He gives them the tools they need and then steps out of the way and watches them run. So um, that's my my secret to success for leaders is like, get people who are smarter and better and, and let them run. Get out of the way, provide interference, stop people from messing with them and let them run.
0: I love it. I will also mention something now that you talk about. People work. Uh, is the development part? Um, how how large of a team have you managed? So you, you did you did manage large, very large teams. I, I yes. Think. Yes. And and I remember you were very intentional about getting everybody on your team to have a mentor at a very yes. high level. And yeah. I think that was also kind of like a wow. You really are invested in making sure they are developed, not just about you, it's about them and and their development. So how was it managing a very large team and not having as much of a direct access to maybe the people at the lowest level on your your team?
1: It was, if you have the mindset of, I'm going to develop my direct reports, and I'm going to, as, as best I can, instill those values in them, they will mirror those values down the food chain and it's and really that was my job and that's something i evaluated people on you know do you know the people in your organization how well do you know them what are you doing to help them be successful and not just business successful what are you doing to help them feel good about themselves the company all that kind of thing you know, you, you go to meetings and you have these team building exercises and they throw everybody in a room and they have some games about, that's not it. It's a day-to-day thing. And my job at one point was just to call, not just, but it was to call these folks and, you know, my direct reports, you know, I'm not calling for anything. I just call to say, hi, how you doing? I know their birthdays. You know, I know their significant other's names. I know if they have children. I know if there is a challenge going on in their life or something very positive going on in their life. And you know, this is again a small group, maybe six or seven people, but they're managing another 25 people who are managing another hundred people and down the food chain. And if they're exercising those same skills and, and um, 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 using those same values, then you're gonna win. And that's that's a mindset. And I learned that from one of my managers, um, a woman who just, just phenomenal. Uh, you know, I'm not mentioning any names, but she was truly phenomenal. And to this day, I, I am awestruck by her. But she did that with me and my peers. And we felt that. So I'll, I'll stop there.
0: Thank you. Yeah, that's important. I, I, I think, yeah, I always think about that in terms of people like you who are obviously passionate and great managers, but also you can do that at the level for when you start to manage very large teams. But you're right. If you build that as a culture, they would emulate that. The people that are your direct reports will emulate that and it goes down. And, and the win comes back to the organization and to you as well. So,
1: and you um, hold people accountable. This is, you know, that's something that you don't, you know, you can't, um, specifically measure, but you know, and you ask those yeah. questions, you know, again, you've got the, the qualitative versus the quantitative, the quantitative, that's going to take care of itself. You, you know what the numbers are, but the qualitative stuff, that's, that's personal relationships. And that's, yeah. that's building those bonds. So
0: Thank you. thank you very much, Ruben. This was great. Um, I enjoy talking to you all the time, uh, but I'm especially excited that we got to capture this for my audience. And I know people will walk away from this with a lot of insight. So thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your advocacy. You know, multiple layers of all of that. That I know you are retired, but I I don't know what retired means for you because. <laughs> because I know you are still doing a lot of amazing things um, and investing in people like me. I wanted to ask a question that I ask of all my guests, which is food related because I like food and because food always breaks the ice. <laughs> Not mm-hmm. that we need any ice broken, but if you were to share a meal, a dish, a snack, something um, with your coworkers that is significant to you, what would that be? And and, and why, why did you choose that?
1: I think um, I would choose Mexican food because that is something that I had when I was growing up. We had, you know, our home version of it. I grew up in Southern California, and if you want some of the finest Mexican food in the country, it's in Southern California. And you know, I've seen a lot of uh, phonies outside of Southern California with this fake kind of stuff, and you know it for sure. You know, the folks in Texas might disagree, but I would, because that was, that has happy memories for me. And when we'd have tacos at home. And, you know, once again, that's a very basic Mexican food. And I don't mean to denigrate by any means. What I'm saying is that was something that was happy for me. And that was food. And we talk about it. Yeah. You know, would you put pork in, would you put beef in and, you know, you could have enchiladas to go with that. And it was just something that brought me joy. And you know, my mother was not a chef, but she was a good enough cook so that it was happy for me. And that was something that I enjoyed. My wife and I enjoyed sharing that. And we would have that at home. And she, again, Southern California, she had other knowledge of, of various Mexican food dishes. And so, yeah, that's what I would choose.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I think I would not have expected that but it's kind of why i love this question because you never know what direction people will take it to and and just talking about what i meant to you you know in terms of i chose this because this is the kind of memories it evokes just also speaks to experiences when we talk about people and situations and the experiences we have it shapes us so thank you for being a guest on the thriving and intersectionality podcast i am looking forward to uh, sharing this episode, and happy Black History Month to you for 2024. Thank you very
1: much. <laughs> happy Black History Thank Month for- to everyone. Take care. Yes. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining me, Lola Adeyemo, for these important conversations about the global world of work. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget to share our weekly episodes with your communities and co-workers. For more resources and upcoming events, visit our website www.thrivinginintersectionality.com and join our LinkedIn group, Thriving in Intersectionality. Additional links and resources are listed in the show notes of this episode. Thank you.